Revelation chapter 3. We keep blazing the trail here, moving on at breakneck speed um, through the book of Revelation as we're covering the uh, letters to the seven churches, or the seven letters to the seven churches. And of course, we've been through chapters one and two, and um, now we're to the uh, sixth letter. Um, and these are the previous ones that we've covered. Um, and just in way of introduction, I want, I want to mention to you as we come to this letter of Philadelphia in verse 7, 7 through 13, chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. There's a case could be made that the letters to Smyrna and Philadelphia are the two most important letters in all the seven. Why? They are the two of which Christ has no criticism, no rebuke, no condemnation. They are in effect model churches. And does that mean they're perfect? Absolutely not. Like, are there perfect individuals? Absolutely not, only one. And Christ is not a member of any church. He is the head of the church. He is the ruler of the church. And likewise, because churches are full of hurting people that are imperfect, all churches are imperfect. But I think it's very noteworthy and very significant to us as we consider the messages in these letters that are for us today, that the letters to Smyrna and the letters to Philadelphia contain no rebuke, no criticism. And what a big shift this is from the one we just finished, namely the letter to Sardis, where Christ told them what? You have a reputation for being lively, but you're dead. So what a huge shift from a church that Christ said, you're dead. You think you're alive, but you're dead, to a church that he only has praise and commendation for. <clears throat> in fact, notice in the titles that I put for the churches, that every one of them has a contrasting conjunction there of but. Like Ephesus, strong, they were doctrinally strong, but cold in love. Um, of course, Smyrna, there's no but, because they, did, they had no criticism, no, uh, no uh, rebuke. Pergamum, they were faithful, but they were compromising. They compromised on false teaching. Thyatira, of course, was true to the faith. A few of them were, but they tolerated sin, the sin of Jezebel. And, um, of course, the last one, Sardis, was seemingly alive but dead. And so now we come to Philadelphia, which for the second and last time is the church that has no but. There's no, um, no contrasting criticism. There's only praise, and they are the faithful church. So as I've listed up there, I've entitled it Faithful with No But. And uh, <laughs> I didn't mean for that to be funny, but I guess it is. All right. <laughs> I guess I have to consider my audience, right? <laughs> I know. It's, it's coming from that same table. 
<laughs> but, um, but anyway, I just think that it's significant that we pay close attention. In fact, I feel this letter is the most encouraging letter of all seven. I was greatly encouraged and greatly uh, motivated and uplifted as I read this letter. It's very encouraging, um, very encouraging to us today. And remember this, these are real churches. So these letters were written to a real bunch of people in a real church in a city that really existed in the late first century. But even though the message was certainly to them and the instant or initial meaning of the letter was certainly um, applicable to them, as we've studied, there's meaning, there's purpose, there's application for all of us, for all churches, for all time in every letter. We see some type of all churches in every letter. There's an issue in every letter that every church needs to pay attention to. Every church needs to be encouraged by. And we'll follow the same outline we've always followed, um, looking at the uh, components of the letter. Of course, you see Philadelphia is more down south from Sardis. We continue to move around the mail route. <clears throat> it's about 28 miles up the valley, the river valley from Sardis. And of course, we're headed toward the last letter, which is Laodicea. <clears throat> the uh, components being, first of all, the command. As usual, verse 7, every letter starts with a command. Let's read the text, and then we'll focus on each element. Verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, that you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And my new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, again, the first element of every letter is the command issued from Christ himself, a command of dictation, his very words being given through John to the angel or the representative of the church in Philadelphia. They're commanded to write. Secondly, let's focus on the church and the city in which it's located. Um, Philadelphia. We all know the meaning of the word Philadelphia. Of course, uh, big city in Pennsylvania is named after it. And 
philia coming from phileo, the Greek word for brotherly love, and then the uh, ending root meaning city. So it's a city of brotherly love. It was founded um, by a king in the Lydian kingdom in about 189 BC, and later it was served by a king who had such great love for his brother who, who um, followed him in being king of that area that and his name was Atalus, similar to like Atala, Alabama, but with the U.S. on the end. Atalus, he was such a fond lover of his brother that they changed his name to Atalus, Philadelphia. And so the city adopted that name, Philadelphia. Um, modern day Philadelphia is named Alasir. And as I understand it in Arabic, um, Alam is from Allah, uh, the Muslim God, and Seer means city. So the, today it's literally city of God in Islamic uh, meaning. But it's, there's not really much left of the ancient city, so I won't spend much time. Of, of note, there is a Byzantine church that was built about 600 AD. These are the ruins of the columns of the Byzantine church there that was named St. John's. And of course, I think that's interesting that in the midst of these Christian ruins, what's in the background? A Muslim spire. And um, that's about it. It was known, that's a beautiful picture on the river looking back toward it. It was known as the Athens of the West. It became culturally um, very beautiful and progressive. Um, it was not significant in terms of military position. It was mainly significant in terms of grape growing. It sat on a volcanic territory there where the soil was very rich from volcanic activity. So they had great uh, vineyards and uh, the grapes grew very well there. So they had a tremendous uh, wine production. Their patron god was Dionysus, the god of winemaking and merriment. But anyway, I think what's most significant about the church at Philadelphia in this city was that it was small. It was outnumbered as in Smyrna, they were opposed not only by the local traditions and false religions and idolatry, but by the Jews. Because you know, as in Smyrna, we are told about the synagogue of Satan, where the Jews who claim to be Jews but aren't true Jews dwell. Well, likewise, in verse 9, we're told that this is a synagogue of Satan. Instead of a synagogue of God, the true Jews, then this is a synagogue of Satan, the false Jews. So they were persecuted and they were small in number. So to address this church, notice the descriptors that Christ uses. <clears throat> Verse 7, he says that he is who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. So four titles for Christ here. And you know, 
What's significant about these titles? In all the previous letters, all the titles for Christ came from where? Where were they drawn from? The vision of Christ in chapter 1. In chapter 1, the vision in verses 9 uh, through, um, well, say 18, all the descriptors of Christ previously came from that vision. Evidently, Christ had used up all of the titles from that vision that he wanted to because now he goes outside that vision to take on titles that come from elsewhere. Like first, he says, he who is holy. The uh, holy one, literally, the root word there is hagios. And that literally means separated, set apart. In fact, it's the same root word that we get the word saint from or sanctification. It means to be set apart. What's significant to me about that is, is that any time we consider the holiness of God, is that to some degree, saints are set apart. To some degree, sanctification sets us apart. But only with God is there total separation. You know what I'm saying? Like we are set apart as his people. But we're not totally set apart from sin. God is totally separate from sin. There is no aspect of God with which you can compare to any of us. Holiness is the only attribute of God that is exclusive to him. Think about that. God is loving, but we understand love because we love, right? God is beautiful, but we understand beauty because we see beauty. God is uh, merciful. We understand mercy. You see my point? Every attribute of God we can somewhat identify with and understand because it's like God takes the attributes that we can sympathize with and he takes them to the superlative to the perfect. But holiness, I just want to be sure we pause to consider, holiness, there is nothing we can consider that makes us understand holiness. He's in a group of one by himself, totally. I think that's a good point, Chuck, and I guess that's partly because of religious terms, because we hear people like in the Catholic system refer to someone as Holy Father. And like it's a term of reverence or something, and it is, obviously is a, a term of reverence with God. But as Chuck is saying, not from the aspect of glory as much as it is, even though holiness and glory are obviously linked, but it is set-apartness, it's uniqueness. It's um, the holiness of God is probably the hardest attribute for us to comprehend. And Christ takes this from the Old Testament <clears throat> and the New Testament, but like in the Old Testament, there are many passages we don't have time to look at where God and his son are referred to as the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. Like in Isaiah is said many times, and of course, the most familiar one for us is Isaiah 6, where what? We're told that God is thrice holy, 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 holy. 
Holy is the Father, holy is the Son, holy is the Spirit. Holy in three means holy in perfection. Um, to say that he's holy means that he's utterly and totally unflawed by sin. He's utterly and totally unblemished and perfect. But even in New Testament, holy is used as a messianic title. Um, in Mark chapter 1, I don't know if you remember the story about a demon that Christ was casting out. And what did the demon say in response to Christ? He said, what business do we have with each other? You are the Holy One of Israel. So even demons acknowledged the holiness of the Messiah, that he was set apart. When the angel announced the birth of Christ to Mary, he described him in Luke chapter one as the holy child. In John six, when Peter affirmed who Christ was, he, he uh, said, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And later he, in his sermon in Acts, he rebuked the unbelieving Jews because they disowned the Holy and Righteous One, Christ, and asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be granted to them. So Jesus' identification as the Holy, literally, that's all that's there, the, the hagios. That means that he is deity, he is God. It's a direct claim to deity. Um, and I think, as always, the, the key to understanding the letter that follows is understanding the attributes of Jesus that introduce the letter. Here he is claiming to be the Holy One the true one, the one who has the key of David, the one who opens and shuts. And so how is that such great encouragement to this church and what they're facing? Secondly, he takes on the true, the true one. This means genuine, faithful truth, um, authentic and real. Athenos is the uh, root Greek word and it means absolute truth. Um, again, it's used in combination with holiness in other places, even in Revelation. Revelation 6, verse 10, Revelation 15, verse 3, 16, 7, 19, 2. <clears throat> and it always stands for truth, absolute truth. So here in the midst of falsehood, perversion, persecution, and false teaching, an error that fills this region, Christ stands as the truth. And makes us think in uh, John chapter 14, you remember he took on the title, right? He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. But third, he says, he has the key of David. And this is very interesting to me. The one who has the key of David, um, David clearly symbolizes the messianic office of Christ. The throne of David symbolizes the throne of the kingdom, the kingdom that is eternal and the kingdom that is coming, that Christ will occupy in eternity. Well, it's a messianic office as in Revelation 5 and Revelation 22, but a key in scripture denotes what? Authority, control. Like if you have the key to someone's heart, what does that mean? You have control over their heart. You have the authority 
to change their heart, to govern their heart. So a key was very symbolic. Uh, and like even today, when someone receives the key to the city, it's like they have reverential control and respect over all that city. But what's interesting is where this specific reference to the key of David comes from. Because you remember back in chapter 1, Christ already has claimed some keys, right? In chapter 1, what keys did he say he had? Um, in verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18, he says, I have, he said, I'm, I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. So Christ already says, I've got the keys of death. I've got the keys of hell. I've got the keys of conquering death, of control over death, of control over who goes to hell and who does not. Now he's saying, I've got the key of David. We'll flip back to uh, Isaiah chapter 22, because I think this is very interesting um, to see this reference. Isaiah chapter 22. Even though Isaiah is a prophetic book, there is history in the prophecy. And in Isaiah chapter 22, there's a story of a representative of the king um, who was replaced in Isaiah 22, verse 15, <clears throat> God is commanding Isaiah to go to the steward, to Shebna, who's in charge of the royal household. Um, that steward of the king of Israel was disobedient. He was unfaithful. So in verse 17, God says, Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O man. He's about to grasp you firmly. Verse 19, I will dis dis depose you from your office. I will pull you down from your station. Verse 20, then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him, and I will trust him with your authority. So the authority that Shebna has as the second in command to the king will be given to Eliakim. And I will, verse 21, I will entrust him with your authority and he will become a father to the inhabitants of, inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Verse 22, notice what it says. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Verse 23, I will drive him like a peg in a firm place and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house or to his progeny. So all of his descendants will hang like a nail in a sure place on the glory of Eliakim because he will be a faithful servant. So he is a type of a faithful servant to come who will take the key and exercise faithful authority over the use of that key. Notice verse 22. Doesn't that read exactly like Revelation 3, 7? The key of the house of David, when he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. Exact same wording. What was exciting to me was this helped me put together something that we all know and we use it repetitively over and over and over, especially at Christmas time. And that's in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. 
Because it says, you know, unto us a son is given, a child is born, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Well, you know, I guess I just always took that as foundational. But now I understand that what that really means, like when someone had the key to the kingdom, it was a huge symbol of authority that they wore around their neck on straps. It was a part of their garment, part of their um, uniform, so to speak. And so, see, in verse 22, it says that Eliakim will have this key of the house of David on his, what? Shoulder. So, when it says that the shoulder is upon the, the, the government is upon the shoulder of the Christ, Isaiah 9, verse 6, what that literally means is that the, that's representative of a key that hangs about his neck, that rests upon his shoulder, the straps of it rest upon his shoulder, the symbol of authority and control. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. And that's the fourth title that's given to him, is that he is one who opens and shuts. And the opening cannot be overcome, the shutting cannot be overcome. I can act, as he says in Isaiah 43, I can act and who can reverse it? No one can shut the doors to the kingdom or to blessing if he holds them open and no one can force them open if he holds them shut. So what, putting all this together, what picture do we get of the Christ who is giving this great encouragement to this faithful church at Philadelphia? Open that up to you. These four titles what kind of picture do you get of Jesus from these four titles? It's, it's absolute sovereignty. Absolute sovereignty. He's holy. He's true. He has the key. The key to blessing. The key to salvation. The key to the kingdom. He has the keys of death and hot days. And what he opens, no one shuts. What he shuts, no one's opening. Why is that significant? These two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, the two faithful and true churches, they're both under severe persecution. They're both under dire circumstances. They're outnumbered. They seem as if what they do doesn't matter. They seem to be overwhelmed by the persecution of demonic activity, the persecution of idolaters, persecution of the culture and the world around them and the persecution of the false Jews, the synagogues of Satan. With all that on them, where can they look for hope? What can they look to to encourage them? He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and shuts. So, do we face persecution? Do we face trials? Do we face obstacles and temptations? Absolutely. So where do we look? What, what should be our encouragement? Is it that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps? Is it that God helps those who help, him help themselves? You know, that's not even biblical. But, <laughs> but where do we look? We look to he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, 
who opens and shuts. And I think this is especially significant because immediately following this in verse 8, he says, I know your deeds. And this is leading, this is his commendation um, where the omniscient Christ declares like he has in all the other letters, he knows them. He knows their works. He knows what they've been doing. And he knows, even more importantly, he knows what God has been doing through them. The works, their gold, silver, and precious stones. He knows their deeds. But what's significant to me about this church is what are their deeds? Verse 8, I know your deeds. Period. So what deeds did he list? I don't see any. I know your deeds. And it's clearly a letter of commendation, but Christ doesn't list them. So what does that say? Amen. Because the people around there didn't care anyway. They were an outnumbered, small, from worldly standpoint, insignificant church. They were insignificant. He said, because Christ, no one's the only one that mattered. It didn't matter that anybody else knows what their deeds are. And that's right. And so likewise, what's the application to us? Do you ever feel like, God, I'm doing all this stuff. I don't ever get any recognition. Nobody knows what all I'm doing. You know, I'm praying for these people. I spend hours in prayer for this or for that. And no one knows that. And you sure don't want to brag about your praying. <laughs> so, but what's Christ say? I know your deeds. And prayer is a work, no doubt. You, you help someone, no one knows you help that person. You labor with difficult circumstances year after year, on and on and on, and it seems like no one cares and no one helps. But God cares, and Jesus knows your deeds. And so that is our great encouragement. And it's not just that this loving, merciful Jesus knows our deeds, but which Jesus knows our deeds? Not just the one who's loving and sweet and merciful, but the one who is holy, who is true, who has the key of authority to all, all things, who opens and shuts and controls all things. That's who knows our deeds. And I just think that is extremely encouraging when you think about it in that context, that the sovereign God of the universe, he knows and he understands. But moving on, he's put before us um, an open door. Well, I tell you what, before we talk about the open door, I, th I think this is extremely uh, insightful about what was going on with this church. And there's a little bit of controversy about verse 8 in the grammar that follows the first sentence, I know your deeds. Then the next sentence, behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. And the NASB goes on to say, comma, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. But as bad as I hate to admit it, 
I prefer the interpretation of the ESV here because the ESV says, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut, period. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and not denied my name. You see the difference? Like the way the NASB says it, this little Greek word root, hoiti, H-O-T-I, which is interpreted because, it can be interpreted, interpreted because or that. I think in this case, it's better interpreted that. That you, I know that you have a little power and that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Here is the commendation. That is the commendation of this church is that um, Christ knows that they have a little power. And by the way, the root word there for power, y'all know what that is? Dunamai, we get dynamite. How much dynamite does it take to make a big bang? Just a little. Well, I know that powerful things come in small packages. Um, <laughs> I don't know why everybody's looking at that table, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but so is but but now I've already said that he has no word of criticism. Doesn't that sound like criticism? That they have a little power? So what's going on? What's he saying? In the eyes of the world, they are small. They're a small congregation. They're probably small in number. They're probably very poor people. They're probably the impoverished and insignificant of that society. So, from a worldly perspective, they have a little power. A little power. Well, when is power most demonstrated spiritually? Is it when we're the strongest? What? When we're the weakest, right? Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think this is worth looking at just to remind us of the truth that we know because I'm always caught up in the human attitude of works and um, that I've got to do something for God. It's just a temptation of our flesh to feel that way. But look in verse 26 of chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. Verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world, like the people in Philadelphia, like the poor people in Philadelphia, who weren't the governors, who weren't the powerful business leaders, who weren't the military leaders. They were the poor, the impoverished, the outnumbered, the persecuted by the rich Jews who were of the synagogue of Satan. God has chosen the foolish things like the little church in Philadelphia to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. And 
as he said in Romans, my power is made perfect in strength. So how is a little power a, con a, a commendation, not a criticism? Because their power is subjugated to the authority and the power of God. That even though it seems little, a little in the hand of God, a little true power in the hand of God is very mighty. That's an excellent point, Chuck. And I think that's what makes Western Christianity so works and prideful, so works-oriented and prideful. Um, like, we are not needy people. We, we love this life. This life is good to us. We're in most parts of the world. This life is not easy. This life is very hard. Just daily subsistence is very hard. But most of us enjoy a very good life. And so it takes extraordinary things coming along, like cancer, like the death of a loved one, like, you know, financial ruin or, you know, it takes dramatic events in the life of a Western Christian to realize our need. We don't realize our need because it's not manifest to us. And uh, so I do think that what this points to is we hear so much today about the megachurch. And y'all please understand me, I am not criticizing a megachurch. I'm not criticizing megachurches. But if a megachurch is mega only from a worldly perspective, if they're mega only in numbers, mega in buildings and facilities, mega in programs and reputation with the world and everything that's going on, but they're many in their view of God, many in their trust of God, many in their acquiescence to the one who is holy and true and has the keys of authority, who does the work of opening and shutting, then what does the mega buy them? What does the mega do? And on the other hand, a mini church with the mega God and a mega view of Christ, what does it do? Y'all see my point? I'm just trying to contrast I'm, I don't mean this as criticism of megachurches because obviously if a megachurch has a mega view of God and a mega submission to the Christ who is the head of the church, then they do great things too. But isn't it just like I said about us as individuals, the more we are mega, the more we have health, the more we have wealth, the more we have power and influence and a good life, who do we tend to trust on? Us. So churches that are prosperous, that are big, that have everything going for them, and it just seems to keep going that way, what's the temptation? They begin to trust in who? Their church, the programs, the building, the people. Everything but the head of the church who empowers the church by his own spirit. So I don't know um, I don't know how much that impacts us as a church, but I think it's sobering for us to consider 
that to the extent that we realize we have but a little power, that's the extent to which Christ will use us in the world and the extent to which Christ will make us successful. We will be a mega congregation, a mega body of Christ. And notice what follows this little phrase. You have a little power. What follows? You have kept my word and have not denied my name. So what is demonstrative of having that submitted power? We do what? We keep his word. Regardless of how insignificant it seems, regardless of how useless it seems, regardless of how hopeless it seems, we keep his word. We don't give up. We keep his word and don't deny his name. And so why do you think Christ is telling them this? Because don't you think it's because the temptation is more than strong for them to what? Not keep his word. We're outnumbered, we're overwhelmed. What we're doing seems to make no difference. We're never gonna change this society. It's culture gone mad. It's a godless, sinful, wicked place that we live in. What's the point? Just give up, just acquiesce. You know, this compromise with the world about homosexuality. This compromise with the world about um, any other aspect we want to name. I won't get into too many political choices. Well, an obvious one is abortion. So aren't we in the same boat? Don't we live in a place where it seems hopeless? I, f I feel that way. I mean... Every time I watch the news at night, I feel it's hopeless. It's gone. We've lost. You know, in fact, those of you who know me well, I mean, that's what I'm always thinking is the only hope is start all over. But what's really the only hope is to trust in the one who is holy, who is true, who has the keys of authority, and who, if he opens the door of opportunity, no one shuts it. If he opens the door of salvation to the most vile people in Washington, D.C., they will come to him. And if he shuts a door of opportunity for demonic work in this country or wherever, no one opens it. It's shut. It's closed. So if we ever doubt our legitimacy, if we doubt our purpose, our power, we need to consider, are we keeping his word? Are we denying his name? Have we kept his word? Have we not denied his name?